G'day, welcome along to another sermon from Good News Christian Church in Howrah, Tasmania, Australia. I'm Bernard Kane, I'm the pastor. Get in touch sometime at goodnewschristianchurch.org or why not come by one Sunday morning. For now, here's the sermon. Um, today we're going to begin with um, one of my favourite books. I know you hear a lot of kind of heavy quotes from me. You'll be pleased to know that one of my favourite books is a Dr Seuss book. Um, and it's one of his... Uh, rare little moral lessons. You know, many of his books, they're just, they're harmless fun, aren't they? One, one fish, two fish, red fish, blue fish. Uh, but not all of them. Some of them have this real bite to them. And uh, anyway, here's one of them, the Lorax. Do you remember the Lorax? Either the film or the book? Uh, that, that funny little orange guy with the yellow moustache coming down, the, uh, the Lorax. Um, uh, he is, I, I, he speaks for the trees, the, the truffula trees, if you remember, and there was the onceler making the thneeds from the truffula trees. Uh, so the Lorax is Dr. Zeus's environmental activist, his little hero character there uh, in that book. And as the story goes, the Lorax confronts this other character, the onceler, the onceler. Uh, now the onceler was once a strapping industrious young lad, uh, with the world very much at his feet, who made his name and his fortune pillaging the environment to build an empire and to build his wealth and to make everything um, his own. And specifically, he logged the truffula trees into extinction, uh, thus wiping out everything that um, lived, in, lived in them, those funny little teddy-looking brabalutes or whatever they were called and everything besides. It ruined the air and the waterways that uh, fed the trees. and everything. You get the picture, right? The Onceler was the bad guy uh, and the Lorax was the hero. But later in life, you see, the Onceler looks back and he's living now. He's this oh, it's fantastic Dr Seuss. He's this crusty old hermit, half-hated and half-feared, but mostly ignored by, the, by this time of life. Uh, all alone in this awful, awful um, decrepit Dr. Zeus implausible tower thing, um, way out past the edge of town where everything's black and bleak and dark, where nothing good grows and probably nothing good can live. Uh, anyway, the one slur from his tower casts his mind back. Uh, and we begin today with his words because, I don't know, I think there is something very relatable in the way that the one slur just got carried away in life, with his lust for more, in wanting more. And the once casts his mind back uh, and he can't quite even explain to himself, I think, his own greed and the things that, uh, the decisions that that greed led him into. He's almost apologetic, but not quite. Uh, and it strikes me as a very believable description of the, 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 the way in which our culture draws us, our hearts draw us, really, to make some pretty crummy decisions sometimes. I wonder if you'd agree. Anyway, here's the once-luck, this greedy man, now all alone and hollow and empty, reflecting on that drive that so possessed him. He says it like this. He says, I meant no harm. I most truly did not. But I had to grow bigger. And so bigger I got. I biggered my factory. I biggered my roads. I biggered my wagons, I biggered my loads, I went on biggering, selling more needs, and I biggered my money, which everyone needs. Um, last week, our emphasis in talking about consumerism was very much on the, the Godward damage that uh, our lust for more 
uh, and for wealth brings, that God with that vertical dimension, consumerism, that thirst forevermore to experience and enjoy and amass uh, for ourselves. Uh, you might remember John Stott's punchy little rewording of Jesus from last week. We read this where he said, uh, we cannot maintain a good life of extravagance and a good conscience simultaneously. Do you remember that? We cannot maintain a good life of extravagance and a good conscience simultaneously. One or the other has to be sacrificed. Either we keep our conscience and reduce our affluence, or we keep our affluence and smother our conscience. We have to choose between God and mammon. Uh, But he also said this, and and this is what leads us to our passage in Luke 16 today, uh, because it's not just the vertical dimension that our wealth and our lust for it stuffs up. It's the horizontal dimension as well. Uh, We read this, wealth can spoil our two noblest relationships. It can make us forget God and, do you remember, and despise our fellow human beings. That's the mention we're going to look at a little more closely. I meant no harm, I most truly did not, but I had to grow bigger. So bigger I got. Um, Could it be, folks, that we stand to wreck a whole lot more than just ourselves if we follow the example of the onceler, if we follow our culture, if we we forget not only God, uh, but what Christ would call us to for one another uh, in the Gospel. Could it be that in Christ there is a call to a wholeness and a wholesomeness that doesn't just fix up me and make me whole and make things whole between me and God, uh, but that just has the power, has the capacity, even has the direction to make this broken world a little bit more whole. So that's the dimension that we're going to look at today. Let's look at uh, Luke chapter 16, but first let's pray. Let's come before God in prayer. Father God in heaven, as we read through our Bibles and indeed as we just go through our lives, we are so saddened and troubled again and again to find this pattern in life, that the rich exploit the poor, that the powerful exploit the weak, and when they're challenged about it, even people who have the truth right in front of them are yet blinded by their sin such that they simply will not see it. And as we come to this topic of consumerism, our Father, as we come to think about our wealth and what we have and have amassed, God, we don't want to be those people. Father, show us, would you please, the inconvenient truths that we need to see today, even if it gets under our skin from the teaching of Jesus or pushes our buttons. We know, Father, that we are wealthy people, uh, globally speaking, historically speaking, And we know that every possession that we currently have, whether material, whether money, whether uh, more intangible than that, everything that we have comes as a gift from our Heavenly Father. And we do need to learn gratitude in these things, but we also need to hear these warnings from Jesus himself. And, And we wonder, our Father, might we be blind? Might we be so deaf and calloused? Surely we stand in danger of blunting this challenge, of smothering our consciences. May it not be so of us today, our Father. So God, lift the scales from our eyes, please, to see the glory of Jesus this morning in the Gospel of Luke, to see the treasure of the Gospel that we have in Christ. May we learn the culture and the ways and the values of his kingdom and may we learn to throw off the culture 
and the ways and the values of my little kingdom. And we ask it for Christ's sake. Amen. Great. So please uh, have Luke open in front of you, if you would, please. Uh, In almost identical words, actually, to last week. Uh, If you were here last week, Matthew 6, remember some of the words there. I've alluded to them already. Well, almost identical words, but just a different context here, which uh, puts them to a different um, uh, uh, purpose. So Luke 16 and verse 13, let's just pick it up in the middle. No servant, Jesus speaking, no servant can serve two masters. Does that ring a bell from last week? No servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The Pharisees, who loved money, heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, You are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of men, but God knows your hearts. What is highly valued among men is detestable in God's sight. So there's the context, friends. Jesus today uh, tells two stories that we're going to be exploring. With one eye, yes, on his disciples, of course, as in all of his teaching, but one eye on these sneering, wealth-loving and yet hollow but still strangely socially admired men, these uh, Pharisees. Two stories about these two very unlikable, I think, unpleasant characters. Firstly, the parable of the shrewd manager. Um, Is that what, if you've got it in your Bible, is that the heading that it's got in your Bible? It's what it's got in mine. Shrewd, shrewd is not the first word that would come to my mind with this bloke there. Is it the one that would come to yours? Let's uh, let's have a look together from verse 1. Jesus told his disciples, and here comes the story. There was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be manager any longer. Do you see what he's saying there? He's he's already decided. Give an account, but clear your desk. (laughs) I've made up my mind uh, about what's, what's happening. You cannot be manager any longer at the end of verse two. And I wonder if this has ever happened to you. It's, there's the crisis in this guy's life. He's thinking, but what am I going to do tomorrow? Have you ever experienced that? Verse 3, the manager said to himself, what shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. And here comes the shrewdness, doesn't it? Verse 4, I know what I'll do. So that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? As if he didn't already know. Why is he asking? It's for a rhetoric, it's for effects. So that they realise how much they owe. Uh, um, 800 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly and make it 400 That's half. Uh, Verse 7, then he asked the second, and how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 800. Um, I don't know about you, I'm I'm all at sea with these bushels, what is a bushel anyway? These bushels and gallons, I know what a 44-gallon drum is, but the red, I mean, I'm sort of trying to do the maths there. We, We need to get a sense of the scale of this. Folks, 
Uh, they reckon the original debts, so 800 gallons of olive oil, we're talking about the annual yield of 150 olive trees, thereabouts, round figures. The annual yield, so give your entire harvest, if you've got an orchard of 100, 150 trees, the whole lot. A, a thousand, what is it, bushels of wheat? Uh, we're a little bit more vague historically about what the modern equivalence of that is, but all of the estimates, the entire range, put the value of that wheat in terms of years of a labourer's wages. Years. Even the lowest estimates of what that translates to in modern terms. And this shrewd manager, dear sir, he knocks the first debt in half, knocks the 20% off the second debt with the stroke of a pen. Uh, now, to this point, how's the story going? I think it makes a certain kind of sense, doesn't it? We know that the topic is wealth, there's the riches, there's the Pharisees that we're going to see again in just a moment, um, sneering their way, they're rich. We know what the lesson's going to be. Sure, we must do. The lesson is going to be, don't be that guy. He's a crook. Wealth has turned him bad. It's got into his veins. Wealth turns people wicked. It makes them awful, vengeful, nasty, self-interested backstabbers who, even when they're found out, they will keep fleecing the very hand that has fed them, uh, whose generosity they've lived off all of these years. Don't be that guy. All right, we know where this lesson's going to go, don't we? And then verse 8. What is verse 8 doing? It's, it's not reading from the script. Verse 8. The master commended. What? The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. Did you hear that? The master commended, the, there it is, dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. So Jesus does want the people of the light, his people, to learn a lesson from this bloke. And what is that lesson? Verse 9, I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it's gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Jesus' lesson isn't, don't be that guy. Isn't this remarkable? Jesus' lesson is, be that guy. Do be that guy. Is that the most, that is surprising, isn't it? Now, folks, if you're thinking like me, we must have missed something. How on earth can the master commend this bloke? Uh, even if he is impressively crafty, which he obviously is. But how can the master commend this guy when he has just been swindled out of, what, tens, probably hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of value, to kind of put it in modern terms? And how can shrewdness be the lesson here? Well, okay, we get how shrewdness can be the lesson, but couldn't Jesus have picked a slightly less complicated illustration for that? And you might be beginning to wonder, of course, if you think about the the story a little bit more, uh, what kind of friends are these potential new employers going to be anyway? Because uh, if I were in their shoes, all right, these debtors, I wouldn't be offering this fox of a bloke a job tomorrow, would you? I mean, it's, even if he has cut my mortgage in half today, today he's my hero. But tomorrow, the guy's a liability, isn't he? Brothers and sisters, um, I think the teaching point of Jesus is clear here, even if we struggle to figure out exactly how the story relates. But, but I think there are three details in the text 
that maybe help us to see the story a little bit differently and bring a little bit more force to, uh, to the teaching point. And I'd like to share them with you. Three little points that just turn the story a little bit, for me at least. Verse 1, um, yes, absolutely, the, the manager is guilty of mismanagement. That's the assumption of the story. It's there right from the very beginning. Um, he is a scoundrel, or at least he was in the past. And for that, he lost his job. Verses 6 and 7, I guess I'm exploring, could it be that he's somehow turned over a new leaf? Because it seems that he's managed to cut the debts in such a way that delights the debtors. It makes them favourable to him as a person. That's the outcome that Jesus is uh, um, kind of, you know, championing for them. They're, they're favourable to him as a person. Tomorrow they will be favourable to him, not just when he's holding the master's purse strings today. And yet the master holds no anger, no violence, no misgivings towards him. He's managed to thread that needle. Uh, and thirdly, verse 9, the lesson that Jesus commends is this dawning realisation that, hello, wealth used well is not wealth hoarded, but it is wealth released or spent to make friends, whether temporarily, earthly, or in view of eternity, which is where he goes next. Now, I could be wrong about this, but the best explanation that that I've found that certainly um, uh, fits all of those details best for me is to ask the question, what if those debts were his to forgive? Stick with me here. What if he's turning over a new leaf in this forgiving little routine? Not the whole debt. It's obviously he's uh, he's managing them for the master. So the whole debt obviously belongs to the manager, uh, sorry, to the master, to the rich man. But what if the part that he let them off was indeed his to forgive? Um, Stick with me here. This was part of the culture back then. It's part of how the middleman made his money, you see. If I'm the middleman, if I'm the manager and you're in a desperate spot uh, and you come to me because you are desperate, you trade perhaps in olive oil, say, or in wheat and you have buyers who want to buy from you this season but you had just the worst season and so you've come to me uh, to try to to put things together. I've got you over a barrel. Sure, I'll give you 400 measures of olive oil or whatever it is, but when you pay it back, oh, you'll pay back 800. Uh, Which, yes, pays back my master, but it also includes a whopping cut for me, you see. Uh, The master was never going to see all 800 anyway, so he's not too worried if I reduce the debt on the day that I'm fired, do you see? Or say uh, you come to me uh, and you're after wheat, sure, I'll give you um, uh, 750 bushels of wheat or whatever whatever it is, but on the day that you come to pay it back, it'll be a 1,000. You know, with interest included and my cut included, do you see? So when you pay it back, it's not 750, it's 1,000. Take it or leave it. I don't mind if you starve this year. So you go away full of wheat and olive oil. You go away with an income for this year, but you go away with a debt for the next decade as you try and make it up. Most of which will go to my master, of course, but a big slice is going to go into my pocket. Yeah. This crazy thing happens. The next season, I call you back. I've just lost my job, but I'm still in control of things just for today. So what have I got to lose? Let's rewrite the debt. 
All you have to do is just pay back the principal. That's all I want from you. Just what you originally took. Never mind my cut, just pay back the 400 olive oil or 750 or whatever it was, whatever the original was. My master, do you see in this scenario, this hypothesising, and it is just hypothesising, my master gets his due, he's lost nothing. I go without, but I lost my job today anyway, so I was never going to see a dime of that extra of my cut. And you, well, you see a man who has thought about you, who has put people, namely you, ahead of even my wealth, uh, even in a moment of personal crisis. Now, would you invite that man to lunch tomorrow? Do you see? That's no, just hypothesising. It's, but it seems to fit some of the facts here. Money exists for relationships, not the other way around. And in some moments of personal crisis, even the people of this world can see it better than the people of the light. And Jesus said, if only we could see that a bit more clearly. Verse 8, the master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it's gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. So the question I want to put to us, I mean, Jesus says, even even better than the people of the light, the question I want to put to us is, in the way that we spend or in the way that we hoard, what today is more valuable to you than your wealth? What today is more precious to you than your things or than money or than the experiences that you get to chase after or enjoy? What is more valuable to you or more precious? Now, do your actions, does your spending reflect those values? Do you see? You know, I spend my money so easily on things like, but I spend it so very slowly, so very rarely, and only after lots of prayer and thought and delay on things like. Um, Kent Hughes, a marvellous American author and preacher, uh, Kent Hughes reckons... uh, People who are good with money, they're usually really good at planning ahead, thinking ahead, looking ahead. That's one of the traits of people who are good with money, usually. It's that the problem is we just don't look, we just, we need to look ahead a little bit further. Uh, he says, one thing is sure, our worldly wealth will go somewhere. We cannot hang on to it. One day, our most precious things will fit in a hospital drawer. The only wealth that will endure is that which has been invested in others for the sake of Christ and his gospel. Verse 9, I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it's gone, when it's gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. I think he, he, he means you don't buy your way to heaven. He means buy theirs, spend your money so that they'll be there to welcome you. I think that's what he's saying, isn't it? I think Kent Hughes is right. The only wealth that will endure is that which has been invested in others for the sake of Christ and his gospel. Uh, Now, I just want to say one thing. 
I don't think it's come across in this way, but I just I'd absolutely I want to be crystal clear. I'm not particularly interested in making um, an appeal to you today in these two sermons, an appeal to you to put more in the offering each week. Uh, that, that's really not. I hope that's come across clearly. That's not particularly the focus as we're thinking about something as vast as consumerism. It may affect it in that affect you in that way, um, because this is way more broad, isn't it? It's not just about cash. Um, it, and it, it's more than just church. It's a whole approach to things, the things and the uh, treasures of this world and the valuable, precious things. Uh, again, Kent Hughes, the mere giving of money, the mere giving of money can be so sanitised and insulating. But when we, he says, when we use our homes for others so that our personal space is loaned to others, when we use our vacation homes to refresh others or let others borrow our cars, then we have begun to touch upon what Christ says. It's much more broad, isn't it? And quite a, quite a vision for us. Uh, let's quickly look at the second story, much more briefly now, uh, at the rich man and Lazarus. I think a story that's way more familiar to us, uh, the rich man and Lazarus there. Um, did, you, did you know Lazarus is the only character in any of Jesus' parables who gets a name. Can you think of anyone else who does? In the parables, I mean, so in the little stories that Jesus tells, Lazarus is the only one, every other parable is just a rich man or a farmer or a woman. Ah, but Lazarus gets a name. Now, do you know what Lazarus' name means? It means God helps. God helps. Verse 19 Luke chapter 16, verse 19, there was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. Uh, That's not a mercy, by the way, you understand that for Jews... Uh, dogs were unclean animals. Uh, now, what's happening here? What, what do we begin with today? Wealth can spoil our two noblest relationships. It can make us forget God and despise our fellow human beings. Now, does the rich man despise Lazarus? I think we've got to say he does, doesn't he? <laughs> and in, in a way, it's, it's the worst way of all because Lazarus had become entirely invisible to this rich man as he swanned around in his purple up there living in luxury the other end of his driveway. Jesus knew exactly how wealth works and the rich man's world, you see, even in these opening couple of verses to the parable, the rich man's world, he'd made it so safe and so sanitised and clean and secure. Lazarus, do you see, was on the other side of the gate. Why was the gate there? The gate was there to keep Lazarus out. Whereas, well, you've got to wonder, don't you, even Lazarus's name mocked him in life. God helps. <laughs> well, does he? Does he? It doesn't look like it. And today, from time to time, friends, we're troubled by the same question, aren't we? We pray for Christians in North Korea. Does God help them? We seem to pray for them for a very long time, or we pray for Christians, it depends on what the crisis is, South Sudan, Iraq, you name it. Does God help them? Or we read the book of Job, gets under our skin like this sometimes. Job, almost the same as Lazarus in some ways, wasn't he? Bereaved and broken and grieving and with sores and all the rest even. 
But the thing is with Job, well, life doesn't always lift you back up like it did with Job, does it? Lazarus was laid. He didn't lie down. Did his legs not work or something? Was laid. Lazarus longed for crumbs, just scraps, just give me any, just any crumbs. Instead of crumbs to feed him came the dogs to feed from him and feed, feed off of him. It is a grotesque picture. Jesus knew how wealth works and Jesus also knew that the sneering Pharisees and this rich man living at the top of his driveway were far poorer than the man who God helps, do you see? Verse 22, the time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried in hell where he was in torment. He looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I'm in agony in this fire. Um, Can I just caution us? Uh, I'd recommend against mining this story for details about exactly how the afterlife's going to work. It's just a story. Will we be able to see the people in hell from heaven? I I don't know. I, I don't reckon this is the greatest story to go to. It's just a picture teaching a very simple point. Anyway, verse 25. But Abraham replied, son... Remember that in your lifetime, you received good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he's comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. We've heard two cannots, haven't we? You cannot serve both God and money. And here's another one. Once you're there, you cannot change things. Verse 27, he answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone rises from the dead... Sorry, if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to them, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. Uh, and if you're someone with, um, with people who are dear to you, who for all the world, it seems they're not going to be joining us at this point. You know, my, my own family, you might be thinking to yourself, Goners, unless maybe if someone rose from the dead, unless folks, let's let's wrap up. Do you remember how the Lorax ends? You remember that story, Doctor Zeus? Do you remember how the Lorax ends? Look, if you haven't read the Lorax, grab it out from the library, or just just go and check it. Check out the kids section. Get the Lorax next time you're at the library and check it out, or, or watch the film. Um, the Lorax ends with an unless. It ends with a call to turn it around before it is too late. Not unlike Jesus' call here to turn it around before it is too late. You see, the onceler, uh, the onceler spent his life consumed by his own consuming. Uh, and it didn't just ruin the world, it ate him up inside and this hollow, half-hated, half-feared but mostly ignored hermit at the edge of the world 
Um, it cut him off from anyone, alone in this very dark little world there, the once But the book ends with this little possibility. Because, you see, the Lorax, once the once had cut down the last of the truffula trees, the Lorax had left the once with a word, just one word, the word unless. And in his old age, the once finally cracked the meaning of that word because the Lorax was trying to tell him the same thing he'd been trying to tell him all along. You know how this ends, unless. In other words, you don't have to go that way. It doesn't have to end that way. Or or to put it in our terms, we know where an obsession with wealth goes. We know how it chews people up. We know how it destroys lives and causes people to make terrible decisions. You know it makes, it, it makes us forget our God. You know that it turns us against one another. You know where it takes us and you know where it ends. Unless, unless, as the once put it, unless someone like you cares a whole awful lot, nothing is going to get better. It's not. And folks, Jesus' message uh, to us here in this parable and across Luke 16 altogether, Jesus' message to us, um, yep, it's a little bit different, but it's got a whole lot in common, actually. On the one hand, in common, Jesus agrees, it will not get better. If we follow in the footsteps of our world, if the Lazarus at our gate remains at our gate, and if we let him languish there, as our world does a reflection of our very values and what we think is precious and important in life, then what have we become, O people of the light? But on the other hand, I don't think Jesus' message is quite the same as the once, because I think we know within ourselves, I think we know that just caring a whole awful lot, it doesn't really have the power to fix the two noblest relationships, ours with God and ours with one another. Um, I I don't believe you or I have the power within ourselves to forge out in a new direction and buck our culture all under our own steam, do we? And and at this point in Luke's story, I think these words are very carefully chosen and they mean so much more if someone rises from the dead. Uh, And sure, Jesus is definitely saying, no, 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 Um, it wouldn't make a difference in the sense that they have Moses and the prophets. They don't just need more words. You don't just need to be told again, it ends badly lusting after wealth in this world. We've got plenty of those kinds of words. No, no, at this point in Luke's Gospel, I think that little phrase, if someone rises from the dead, the end of verse 31, I reckon Jesus is telling us that if you want to learn to loosen your grasp on the wealth of this world, if you wish you knew how to put people ahead of your prestige, if you would mend things between you and God, the vertical dimension as well, then you and I need more than words. We actually need Lazarus. We need God's help. We need the help of the Lord. We need someone who rises from the dead, not just to give more words, but someone to teach our hearts to treasure something more precious, something more valuable, something more beautiful and captivating and wonderful in the gospel of Jesus, something more assuring and lasting, a kind of wealth that won't 
just go and it won't be crammed even into a hospital drawer. We need the help of the Lord if someone rises from the dead. How about we pray together? Our Father God in heaven, we are in, we are in awe of Christ because when he was faced with rich people, he could see their poverty. That's what he saw. When he was faced with poor people, he held out his, his hand in compassion. When he was sneered at and scowled at, when he was scorned and mocked, he yet went to the cross for sinners like us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And God, if he died for us, how much more will we live through him? God, teach us today, please. Yes, in our, in our attitude and our open-handedness to the poor, whether the poor people of Hobart or the poor people around the world, we have access to so many now, or whether in that broader attitude of, of bending our wealth to the service of Christ's saving work and agenda in our world, in using our wealth not for its own sake, but as an instrument for the sake of others and for their salvation. God, may we learn today to live for Jesus, to be guided by Jesus, to find our forgiveness, to find our worth in Jesus, so visibly different from the culture of our day and visibly happy to be so. Captivated by a greater vision than our world offers, firm and clear-eyed, in who we are in Christ, beloved children, the apple of your eye with nothing left to prove and nothing to lose. And so we ask, Father, for your powerful enabling in this. As a community, we're barely scratching the surface of what you're calling us to in the gospel. Lord God, work by your spirit amongst us for your glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.